We've got a lot of things on our to-do list as a church, but one of them is to figure out how we can do a better job of sharing some stories. Because this is a pretty neat little story here that we just saw with Hannah and all that God's doing in her life. And in the first service, um, you guys, most of you who've been around here, you know Ramundo, part of our church family, came from Juarez in quite a unique circumstances. His grandparents were here today. Um, they're up here for his graduation. How cool is that? Ramundo's graduated from welding school. And uh, his grandparents are here from Juarez to, uh, to, to be a part of that. It's amazing. God's doing a lot of good things. And it is a good and God-honoring thing to commemorate those milestones as a church family. We just had a milestone here today with Hannah. Last week, we had a great milestone with little Andrew Zerbys getting baptized. That was neat. And when it comes to faith, it's a journey marked by all kinds of milestones. And sometimes our faith journey takes twists and turns that we just don't expect. And I had an email that came to me right before Easter that really um, made that clear. Uh, the email came from a guy that I hadn't talked to for a long time, since I was a youth director down in New Ulm, Minnesota. And I'll change his name for this account, but it's a very real deal. We'll call him Josh here. But uh, Josh's parents weren't a part of our church. Josh, though, was part of our youth group. And it was the case with a lot of the students in our youth group, you know, at, in that time, in that place. He was uh, one of these passionate teenage Jesus followers who converged on Center and Broadway in New Ulm, Minnesota. And we'd gather and we'd have these really neat times together. Well, Josh was an amazingly gifted young man in so many different ways. But one of the things that he was good at was magic. And this kid would, would put on these magic shows with these Christian themes that were just remarkable. And I, if we would have had a yearbook for our youth group, he would have been like most likely to be the next Christian David Copperfield or the first Christian David Copperfield or something like that. Well, here's why I was surprised um, by the content of his email. Because this is a guy who was just on fire for Christ as a teenager. In the email, he said this, and his words are, Hey, Chris, I'm, I'm coming out. And I'm coming out not in the way you might think. I'm coming out as an atheist. I'm coming out as, a, as an atheist. He went on to say, he said, You know, as a teen, I was sincere. But the older I got, the more I realized I'm, I'm, this is a, this is, I'm doing this for others. This is not what I believe. I'd rather be an honest atheist, he said, than a lying believer. And in his email, he included this poem. I'll show you the poem here. And I don't think he'd mind me sharing it because he's submitting things to, to publications um, all around the, the country. This is a poem that, uh, that Josh wrote. He said, Death to apathy, slaughter the sorrow. Spit on the demons whose lies ring hollow. Taste the weakness behind each amen. Burn down the altars. I'm unborn again. I'll tell you this, I have a lot of respect for Josh because I would much rather have a conversation with an honest anything than a dishonest anything. And I appreciate that he was um, candid enough to just come out and say, here's, here's where I'm at. And he left the door open for a conversation. In fact, he initiated a conversation by sending the email, so be praying for me because I'm going to circle back to that conversation just as soon as I can with him. And I'll share a little bit more about that open door here in a second. Well, Jennifer, not too long ago, she passed along a, um, a article to me, and I was reading the article, and the article had, had a stat from the Barna Research Group about teenagers and what happens as they become adults. And according to the Barna Research, they said that 80% of the kids who are right now in church, 80% will be disengaged from church before they hit 30. 
So that's not 80% of the general population. That's 80% of the kids in our churches will be disengaged before they hit 30 when it comes to their faith or when it comes to the church. Which leaves me haunted by a question. And that question is, as much as it depends on us, God, what could we do to help the Joshes? What can we do to help our kids, our teenagers right here? What can we do to help equip them with a firm foundation that doesn't require us to be around them anymore? What, what can we do as best we can with the help of God to help them come to a place where it is a real and tested and sincere faith that they have? What would God have us to do? And the, the place to start with this question is from the greatest youth worker of all time. And I don't just say this flippantly. I don't say this, oh, I'm going to have to say Jesus now. There was a joke we used to tell in youth group. There was um, this guy, they were describing what, what is fuzzy and brown and scampers on the ground. It's got a long fuzzy tail. It climbs trees. It eats nuts. And they're asking this of a youth group. And the kids in the youth group, they're not putting their hands up. And they keep saying, well, um, it starts with an S, ends with an O. They're in Minnesota. You probably saw one today. No one's putting their hands up. Youth director's like, what's going on? Finally, one kid puts his hand up and says, well, I want to say squirrel, but the answer is probably Jesus. <laughs> this isn't one of those situations. Jesus was the greatest youth worker of all time. Why do I say that? Because most of his disciples, if not all of his disciples, were teenagers. And those teenagers went on to change the world in cultural headwinds unlike anything we've ever seen in our lives. So let's look to him. What, what did he do? How did he disciple his teens? We only have so much time, so we're only going to be able to look at one prayer. But before we get to that prayer, I want you to encourage you to write this down. Inside your notes, inside your bulletins, we have this thing, this note page. I encourage you to write this down. Jesus left an unparalleled legacy. Can I get an amen on that? Even if you don't believe that he was the son of God, he left an unparalleled legacy. The, the people that he discipled went on to disciple others who discipled others who discipled others. And now there's, what is it, of six billion people, two billion people identify Christian. What did he do in the lives of these teenagers? Well, we don't have time to do the whole thing, but let's look at one prayer that he taught them to pray. And there's two places you can find this in the Bible. One is Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. And the other is Luke 11. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 9. The teaching series we're in right now is called Welcome Home. And today what we're going to focus on in this Welcome Home series is young people. What can we do as best we can in the, in the power of God, his direction, his guidance, what can we do to help our younger brothers and sisters? grow up in such a way where their faith is real, it's tried, it's tested, it's true. And I think there's a lot we can learn from this prayer and the circumstances around it. In context, this prayer we're going to look at, wish we had time to look at the surrounding verses. In context, Jesus himself is contrasting this prayer. He said, there's the prayers that you're going to hear from the, the non-believers. There's the prayers you're going to hear from these hypocrites. Let me give you this prayer that's very different than those prayers. And the prayer goes like this. Pray then like this, says Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you've ever heard people talk about the Lord's Prayer, if you're not a church-going person, this is the Lord's Prayer. There's also a part that we often 
have in the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Most of you have heard that part. That does show up in some ancient manuscripts. The reason it's not in most of our Bibles is because the oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't have that in there. It appears someone added that later. It's okay. It's, it's, it's good. You can pray that. Just you need to know in the original manuscripts, it probably wasn't there. So we're going to look at this model because this is more than just a prayer. It is a model that is a model for prayer that every, not just teenage, but every adult, we can learn a lot from every disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's something about this prayer, too. As, as we dive in, I would encourage you to write down the Lord's Prayer could also be named the Disciples' Prayer because this was intended to be a prayer that was prayed by his disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a powerful model of prayer. It's a framework. Some, some of the scholars say it's kind of like the, the, the structure to a building, and then from there you can add in all these rooms and all these types of things. And it's issued not so much as a command as much as it's offered as an invitation. All right, let's break it down, starting with verse 9. Verse 9 of the prayer says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first half of this prayer, the focus is on God. And isn't it so easy to forget that when we come to prayer? It, it might just seem strange, but it's so easy to forget that that's the focus. You know, I, I, was, I went out running um, yesterday, and, and I went out, and it was early in the morning, and, and I, I've been praying a lot while I've been running. And I've been, I was praying, and I just jumped right into, God, I need your wisdom, and we need your discernment, and we need... And then I was like, what have I also been praying all week? I've been praying the Lord's Prayer about 100 times this week. And I'm like, how does the Lord's Prayer start? It doesn't start, hey, God, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. The Lord's Prayer starts out, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that just changed the whole focus of my prayer. Because now the person who I was praying to was the starting point for my prayer. So as I was running up Lexington and past the, the, the armory area and just seeing the beautiful trees and, and everything, I was just reminded, man, these prayers aren't just going out there. They're going to a God who made all this and who cares for us. When the ancient Greeks would pray, as they would go to their God, if they started with all of the titles for God, they would line up as many as they could. At least that's what some of the scholars said as I was prepping this message. They said that the Greeks used to think, if we just say enough really good pleasantries about this God, maybe if we do that, we'll get a little love from above. So they would just pile on the, oh, this God and that, and you're so awesome, blah, 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 blah. In contrast to that, how did Jesus start the prayer? He just simply said, our Father, our Father. And how beautiful is that, especially in contrast to the prayers of the Greeks. Because instead of saying, we have to come up with all of these great things to say, and maybe that God will turn his attention to us, our Father if you consider the Jewish culture in that time, in that place, by saying our father, you're already in relationship. Because what did a good Jewish father do? He provided and protected and cared for and taught and disciplined. The term father in the Jewish culture, first century, invoked warmth and wisdom and security. And so we come to our father, we say our father, and then we say may your name be honored and revered. And one of the reasons that people... Those, those teenagers were so enthralled with Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't just say stuff like that. He didn't just say, our Father. He didn't just say, may your name be revered. Jesus lived what he taught. I don't encourage you to write that down. Jesus lived what he taught. He didn't just say, here's a prayer that you should pray. Do as I say, don't do as I do. He lived this out. God was his Father. And he, his entire life was about giving praise and honoring the family name. 
So let's apply this to this teaching today. What if the kids in our midst, the teenagers in our midst, what if they saw in us, there's hundreds of people who call this their church home. What if they grow up, grew up seeing men and women who we really believe that God was our father and we lived like that? And beyond that, what if, what if they saw hundreds of us who were trying the best we can through the power of the Holy Spirit to honor the family name? That we didn't just look at it as, I'm going to do my thing, but we want to honor God's name. Imagine what that could be like. And let's move on. Verse, uh, the verse is found in 6.10. Your kingdom come, he taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus lived, he didn't just do his thing and then send off an occasional flare prayer. Hey, God, help me out with this. I mean, his entire life was ordered around, what is my Father's will? The whole life was around obedience to the Father. Man, imagine if our young people in the church, they saw this too. That we didn't just do our thing and then we said, hey, God, bless my agenda. But what if we just flipped that whole thing upside down? What if they saw hundreds of us where we said, God, what is your agenda for our lives? What would you have us to do? Verse 11 says this. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, around the world, there are millions of people, millions of people, probably billions of people, where this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, it's a survival prayer. Because if they don't get bread that day, they don't get bread that day. For us in the West, at least most of us in the West, it's not a survival prayer. It's a discipline that we need to remember Because we can forget that in him we live and move and have our being. Our every breath comes from him. What we have on our table that we say is the work of our hands, who gave us the hands that do the work, who got us born in this country, who knit us together in our mother's womb. And we can take God's provision for granted. To pray for daily bread is to humbly come before our Father and just say, God, I acknowledge everything comes from you. Everything comes from you. And those of us who've been around here a while, we've seen God actually answer a lot of daily bread prayers on our behalf. God opened the doors to Chippewa Middle School. God opened the doors here before we even knew that they were going to be open. I remember when we had to make a decision on this trailer, this enormous trailer for our, for our portable church, and that check that we didn't expect, a check that we didn't expect, five digits came in on the 11th, 59th hour Boy, we've seen God deliver our daily bread. And imagine if our young people in this church grew up and they saw us praying daily bread prayers and they saw God answering them. Imagine that. Where we were humbly acknowledging everything comes from God. Everything comes from Him. And He who clothes the birds or the flowers, the field, He who feeds the birds, He'll take care of our every need and He knows what they are. And not only that, not just the, the daily bread part, for us as Westerners. But one of the things that we want to do the best job we can is as adults to say, let's bring our kids along, bring our teens along when we go and visit those who are praying for daily bread in the physical sense. So glad we're going to Mexico where we get a chance to see some of these things firsthand, right? Well, you've been there before, but but yeah, we we take them along, we get to see what God is doing in the midst of some really tough situations. And we come away from experiences like that going, we are so blessed. And we can be such a blessing and all of a sudden not having the premium cable channel and only having the basic cable channel doesn't seem like such a big idea or big deal. All right, verse 12. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts 
as we have forgiven our debtors. Jewish teachers of the day, they regarded sins as debts before God. And even though this was probably written in Greek, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. And if that was the case, the word in Aramaic for debt can also be used for sin and vice versa. And how powerful is that? Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors talking about sin. He said, when someone sins against you, be honest. It's a debt. They've taken something from you. They really owe you. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to forgive. And you're going to need that too. Because someday you're going to take a withdrawal from someone else. And you're going to desire that forgiveness. And then putting it in the whole context of what Jesus did. He paid the debt that we couldn't pay at all. And imagine if our young people grew up in a culture where we were quick to forgive. We were honest about it. But we were quick to forgive, slow to throw stones. What if our young people experienced a church family that wasn't just bound by, hey, we like the same music or we're the same age or we're in the same economic class or we vote the same or something like that. But what if they saw we were really bound together because we were family. We were brothers and sisters in Christ. What if they saw more and more of that? Verse 13 says this. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it's interesting that we just, in verse 12, we had a petition for the forgiveness of past sins. And now comes a petition in verse 13 for protection from future sins. And it's coming from Jesus. He says, deliver us from evil. It's coming from one who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He knows what it's like to be confronted by the accuser, the evil one, the father of lies. And he won the battle that none of us could. And he offers us to give us his strength and his guidance and his victory. And what if, what if our young people grew up with a visceral understanding that our struggle is not against flesh and blood? What if we quit talking like the struggle that we have is against flesh and blood? And what if we reminded ourselves in the world that it's not? It's against powers and principalities that are at work in this world, in and through people. And what if when our students heard a phrase like spiritual warfare, it wasn't some weird thing. But what if it was a very real and natural thing that we were engaged in and we were teaching them how to engage in against a very real and dangerous adversary? Think how that might shape their faith. Well, throughout this prayer that Jesus taught, the first person plural is used. In other words, there's a whole lot of us words. Forgive us, deliver us. This was meant to be an us prayer. People who are children of the Heavenly Father, may God lead us not into temptation, may he deliver us from evil. And as best we can as a congregation, we're going to teach them content. We're going to teach our young people content, really good content, like the Lord's Prayer. We'll teach them to pray it. We'll do the best we can. And that's not all. When our young people join us here in big church, they're going to hear teaching that's biblical and helpful. And not only that, it's going to be purposeful. Those of you who've been around here long enough, you know that we're very purposeful in the topics we teach. It's discipleship. You know, we revisit different key areas of discipleship from different angles, with different scriptures, from different points of view. We're purposeful about pressing into regularly key aspects of discipleship like prayer and serving and giving and reaching out. We're purposeful about taking on controversial topics. 
We're, we're purposeful of what's called apologetics, where we take something that does not seem to resonate with Christianity and how can, how can God be real if kind of stuff. We dig straight up into books. The series, in two series, our, our series is going to be Daniel. We're just diving into Daniel. And we dive into New Testament books. Every Advent, we prepare room for a fresh Advent of Christ in our life. Every Lent, we follow Jesus to, cross, to the cross and through the resurrection. We're serious about our content on Sundays. And when they gather in youth group, we're serious about that content because there's some things that are very teen-specific that we want to dig in, give you guys equipped for the stuff you're facing. So content is important. Content is good. We are very, excuse me, intentional about content. But content is just content. And you can teach people the words of the Lord's Prayer or anything else, but if it's just head knowledge, it's only going to go so far information alone rarely results in transformation. I was told that Benjamin Franklin once said this. We'll put it up on the screens. Tell me and I forget. Teach me, I remember. Then what does it say? Involve me and I learn. And if you're interested in the back of your note page, we have what we're calling our confirmation compass. It's the 1.0 version. Brandon and I are still working on this. But here's a sense of the direction we're going with our confirmation. Here's what we're going to try to do. We don't want it to just be head knowledge. For us, confirmation, that content is very, very important. But rather than just have Hannah get up here and recite some stuff that she memorized, we want to see what we saw. And that's just she's got a heart for Jesus Christ. And she wants to follow him as her Lord and Savior. And so that's what we're trying to do with confirmation going forward. We're going to get more intentional about this. What's our philosophy of confirmation? Our philosophy is every believer should be baptized. Every believer should make a public proclamation of faith. Every sincere believer, baptism or public confirmation of faith is a confirmation, right? Is a confirmation. And beyond that, confirmation should be something you do every day. Confirmation shouldn't be something you do a one-time thing in front of a group and then go home and eat some sheet cake, right? The, the confirmation should be what all of us do all the time, if we're Christians, we confirm that this is a real and personal faith we have in Jesus Christ. And therefore, instead of saying with our teenagers, we have youth group over here and we have confirmation over here, we have discipleship is what we have. Where we're, do, we're trying to teach our students and inspire our students and equip our students, what does it mean to live a God-honoring life? And is that something that you desire to commit to? And so when you look down to our practice, here are some of the components to it. Going forward, we're going to have our confirmation candidates be high schoolers so that they have more of, are able to make a better informed decision than they could when they were younger. They'll sit down and they'll talk about baptism and communion with Brandon. They'll have been baptized. It'll be a heartfelt, I don't know how much emotion felt, but there'll be heartfelt verbal profession of faith. And then these are the types of practices that we're just going to do the best we can. Holistic approach a commitment to personal devotional practices. What are they doing on their own to grow in their faith? Weekly worship, that they're a part of this, that they're part of the broader church family. And then in youth group, they're a part of that too because there they can be with their peers. They can be talking about really key things that matter to them. To be a part of our camps and retreats where we unplug as best we can from the world and we immerse ourselves in Christian community. Participating in a team, recognizing that Christianity, I mean, we follow the one who came to serve, not to be served. And then what we call the First Timothy 4.12 lifestyle. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in your speech and your conduct, your love, faith, and purity. That's the direction that we're going to try to keep going as best we can.
So do we want great content? Yes. Do we want to do the best we can to have a ministry that's holistic? Yes. And hopefully, you guys, that piece we were talking about today, we're going to have that in increasing measure as well. Where while they're participating in that, our young people are surrounded by hundreds of believers who are doing the best they can to live this out like Jesus lived this out. There's another thing I'd encourage you to write down in your notes, the last set of blanks to fill in. Would you please write this down? Our lives will serve as compelling testimonies or what? Considerable stumbling blocks. Isn't that true? Can I get an amen on that? Our lives will either be one of the greatest testimonies that this is real or it's going to be one of the biggest stumbling blocks. They're going to go, if this is real, why didn't people live it out? Our, our example matters. Our example matters. When the faith of our teens is challenged, and it'll be challenged, will our lives be compelling testimony, or will it be a stumbling block? Again, content matters. They're not going to remember too many details of the messages that we give, even though it's important. But they're going to remember us. They're going to remember how you treated them in the donut line. There's a reason why we say that line. Because think of all the lines that our students are in, right? All the lines in this. How do the people around them act when you're in the McDonald's line? How do people ever act when you're in this line or whatever, driver's ed lines? What if at our church, we treated them really different? We noticed them. We cared about them. We smiled. We loved on them. We asked them, how are you doing? And really mean it. But beyond something that simple, we've got opportunities to shine in bigger ways too. Because they're going to hear things like this. As they grow older, they're going to hear things like, churches, it's all about the buildings. And it's my hope that our young people are going to go, actually, for us, not only do we not have a building for like ever, but even if we ever do have a building, it's my hope that you guys, you, you see in us, the building's just the facility. And the facility is all they do is facilitate. And we don't love buildings. We love ministry. And if that will help us, great. If not, great. But we're not going to fall in love with the building. And wouldn't it be great if our young people could see that in us? And when our young people hear people say, and they're going to hear this, church is so inward focused. It's all about them and their little club. Let's give them lots of examples that break that narrative up. Like what you just did with that van. If you're not familiar or if you haven't been around here with our church, we just raised $20,000 for a van for um, the kids in Juarez, Mexico. And what I love about this, you know how many vehicles we own as a church? Zero. How cool is that? That we would have to borrow a van from an orphanage in Juarez, Mexico if we want to borrow a van. Let's keep piling up those stories of generosity where we give, where we give. And when our young people hear this, they're going to hear this. Oh, Christians are so narrow-minded. They're, they're not good thinkers. They're, they believe these primitive ideas about religion and all that kind of stuff. I hope our young people can go, excuse me. Actually, the adults in our church, they were constantly saying, fact check us, fact check us, fact check us. And they taught us things like ad hominem arguments and straw man arguments and circular reasoning. And they helped us to identify when, when things were being taken out of context. Actually, the adults at our church, they taught us 
how to think very critically. I don't just believe this because this is my parents' faith. I believe this because it's true. Imagine that. And one of the most important things that we can do at church, as a church, is to navigate change and navigate conflict really, really well. Because they're going to see all kinds of examples to the contrary. Isn't that true? In more than eight years as a church, we've never had a staff member step down because of a scandal or some sort of moral impropriety. Isn't that something to celebrate? That's something to celebrate. But beyond that, but beyond that, I want to do more, and we want to do more. If you're new to Emmanuel, um, we have some, <laughs> we've been going through a number of staff tr- transitions right now. And one of the things that we're really pressing into is we're asking the questions why. We are in the season right now asking some really hard questions and really looking and examining what's going on. In fact, the number one priority we have as a leadership team right now is to press into these transitions and say, what can we learn? What can we learn from them? We're listening to staff. We're bringing in help from the outside. We're asking hard questions. We're pressing in. We are scheduling all kinds of sit-downs with teams. We're scheduling town hall meetings. And it's interesting. In eight years as a church, I think we called one, like, emergency meeting of our elders in eight years. <laughs> right now, we've got, they're stacked up. You know, we got tons of meetings. I don't think emergency is the right word. We have intentional meetings that we've got planned right now so that we can press into this transition that we're in. And if you want to know how serious I take this, you can ask my wife, who's watched her husband lose about 10 pounds, literally, in the last two weeks. Because I'm not okay. I'm not okay if we're not Okay. And so I want to find out how okay are we, how not okay are we. That matters because that's who we are. We're the bride of Jesus Christ, right? We're the bride of Jesus Christ. And let's find out what we can do in transitions and, and all other times to learn to be the kind of church that inspires people, inspires people to say, would you teach us how to do conflict resolution? Would you teach us how to pray? We want to be more than a church that just teaches the Lord's Prayer. We want to live the kind of lives where our young people say, teach us to pray. And if you look up, in fact, let's do it really quick. If you look up that passage in Luke where the Lord's Prayer is shown, so I'm going to backtrack, Mike. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Look at how it appears in Luke's Gospel. Jesus was praying at a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, what? Lord, Teach us to pray. They saw something in Jesus that they wanted. And that is our heartfelt prayer here as a church. That young people will say, this thing that you've got, I want more of that. I want more of that. Our example matters. When our young people find their face challenged to what seems like a breaking point, it's sometimes that relationship that will keep them hanging on. I said I'd circle back to Josh. Here's how Josh ended his email. He said, I got some major issues, meaning with the faith. However, I can't shake the feeling that I experienced something real when I accepted Jesus. I would like to say it was just psychology, the power of suggestion. Maybe it was, but I can't shake what I felt. I can't really talk to my atheist friends about this, and my Christian friends won't think I'm being serious, considering how unspoken I've been about religion. 
I also don't want to talk to some anonymous stranger online. So you came to mind. I just don't know where to start. So I'm starting by reaching out to an old friend who truly inspired and influenced my faith. And look how he signed it. Your stepbrother in Christ, Josh. And there's a whole lot as I look out in the room. I, there's so many of you who've gotten things like this before. Verbally, emails. People have said, man, I don't know what to believe, but I want to talk to you about it. Because you've lived out that faith in front of these young people. Christianity has always been incarnational. It always has been. The lives we live matter. And I've talked to so many of you who've had conversations like this one. And the individual witness that we have is multiplied as we do this together. Because it could be an anomaly where a student has a Christian coach, one Christian coach, or one Christian teacher, or one Christian on the block. But what if these guys, and these young men and women, what if they see hundreds of us who are trying to live this out? That's a pretty compelling testimony. And so as I start to bring this to the close, one of the things I want to do is I want to say thank you for being a church family who really is trying to live this out. You do make kids feel welcome. Kids love it here. Sometimes it's hard to get them in the nursery when they're first-timers, right? But they love it here. They love you guys. They come running up, give you hugs. They love it. I see those little, my wife's got Facebook like the rest of the world. And um, I see those little videos of them singing the songs and doing the things. You do care more about people than facilities. We haven't had anyone ever pressure us at this church to say, got to build now. Ever. You always step up when the needs are presented before you, whether it's a van, whether it's school supplies for kids in Minneapolis, whether it's food for people right here in Shoreview. You're not satisfied with simplistic answers to hard questions. And I love that. You challenge me to bring my A game every week. And you'd much rather see relationships that are healthy than a program that's slick. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. We're off to a good start, you guys. Actually, we're off to a really good start. But let's not settle for that. Let's settle for continuing to become more and more and more and more and more like Christ, whose disciples said, teach us to pray. Yeah? Yeah. Well, um, I would like us to close with the Lord's Prayer, but before we do that, I want to make sure that we mark our milestones. And we had more of a formal recognition for Sarah at the first service, but I also just want to say thanks to Sarah. This is her last Sunday with us. And I want to officially say thanks to her. I don't know if she's in here right now, but just so you guys all hear these things publicly too, I'm, I'm just so thankful. We're so thankful that she joined us for this season. We are so thankful for that. And as I was trying to think um, what to, to share, how to, how, to, how to put this into words, the image of a race came into mind. Sarah's an athlete, and she's training for a race right now. And I think about how we had Isaiah, and he ran a really strong leg. And we had Tim, and he ran a really strong leg. And Sarah this year ran a really strong leg. She connected us like the, with the covenant like never before, getting us involved in the camps and the retreats and, and the moose and all these different things the covenant does. She took us to a new place when it came to small groups and, uh, and, and getting people in place to really lead and care for those things, but more than just programs. I mean, she touched lives because she's living this out. She's, she is the person you see up here is the person you see behind the scenes. She loves Jesus Christ, and she poured that into her students. So we're so thankful for her investments with us. Well, let's, let's close. I'm gonna, I'll pray again for Sarah, but then let's also we'll close. We'll finish with the Lord's Prayer because that prayer... It's so good. It is so good. 
It is a model for the discipleship that Jesus has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for this thing called the church where you take all these broken people who take out a lot of debts from one another and you decide to work in and through us. How crazy is that? So Lord, we're so thankful though that you have called us to it because there is no other life that we'd rather have than one that's following you and trying to experience more of your kingdom right here on earth. Help us to be the best possible example that we can be of that. Help us to experience kingdom life as brothers and sisters. We're so thankful for our sister Sarah, who you brought into our church for this season. We're so thankful for her. We pray blessing over her as we did in that first service for, as she goes forth. And Lord, now we close this time together with a prayer that we'll pray again in the future. A prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. If you'd like to pray, there'd be people who love to pray for you in the back. Thanks.